You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. A little later in the program, Wes Houston will be stopping by, singer, songwriter, and TV host. But we start first with Thomas Mayer. Thomas is an award-winning author, journalist, and TV producer. Mayor has worked as an investigative reporter for Newsday for over 30 years. I'm aging as we speak. His book, Masters of Sex, was the basis for the Emmy-winning Showtime drama. He's here to discuss his latest two books, Mafia Spies and All That Glitters. Thomas Mayer, welcome to the program. Hello again, Larry. Thanks for inviting me. So I try to make connections between the two of the books. They both came out in close proximity this mm -hmm. year. So you've been very, very busy. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that sticks in my mind is the aspect of power. Who has it, who wants it, and who loses it. And I think that kind of runs through not just these two books, but all the books that you write. Because also you did a great book called The Kennedys, America's Emerald Kings. And it's all about, in a sense, getting access to power. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I guess I would. Um, you know, the the, uh, the book All That Glitters uh, is about Anna Wintour, Tina Brown, and the whole magazine world of the 1980s, and I bring their story all the way up to the current day. And Mafia Spies, the other book that came out in April, uh, that's the story of two gangsters who were uh, hired by the CIA to kill Fidel Castro. So it certainly at first blush, I wouldn't necessarily say there's anything related be between the two of them. But I guess power certainly is the, the, the real power and the perception of power, which sometimes is just as important as real power. Uh, I think that is at play with both. I guess the other thing I would say is they both have sharp elbows. Both, right. uh, both stories, right. you have characters with very sharp elbows. There's a saying, uh, the longest journey starts with a first step, a single step. So in terms of you being a journalist, an author, a TV producer, how important is that first word or that first step in putting together a book, a newspaper story, or even getting together and putting together, in a sense, a television program? Well, with a book, um, I have to say it's one of those things where you say, Lord, please spare me my B-level ideas. And I've got a lot of B-level ideas. And uh, what you try to do is find the, the A-level ideas that will make a book uh, and that you can get your arms around. Uh, that you can, kind of like the, the way you would put your arms around a very big tree, you should be able to touch your fingertips or almost be able to touch your fingertips. Uh, and that, to me, is a good metaphor for uh, what I look for in a book, something that's going to be really challenging, but I think that I think I can accomplish. Uh, newspaper reporting, which has basically been my professional life, um, you know, that's more episodic. It's off the news and, and such. Uh, a television program, I'm finding as I, it's almost like a, a very late in life uh, career that I've had. And it's funny because uh, both All That Glitters and Mafia Spies 
are books that are uh, have been signed by Sony and uh, Warner Brothers and now uh, Fox. Uh, and so um, that's uh, Disney-owned Fox, 20th Century Fox. And so I, I see what the demands of a television program. It's different than a book. It's First of all, it's certainly much more uh, visual. Uh, but it, the, I think one of the major things uh, with a successful TV program is just how much can you really engage with, right. the, with the characters. You know, it's interesting you say that. Over the course of my career of doing television, I interviewed many, many people on Davidson and Company. And I always liked sitting down with second, third generation writers. And this was a big thrill for me because I had the son of John Steinbeck come in, Tom Steinbeck. And Tom wrote a book called Down to the Soundless Sea. But he also wrote screenplays. And he said, writing a book is one thing, but writing a screenplay is kind of like doing a fix-it manual. It's, just, it's a different process. It's almost not satisfying doing screenplays. It's more, it's more satisfying as a writer. What is your experience when you sit down with your book and you see it translated into another medium? Well, um, you have to uh, realize that that child, if you will, that baby that you, you uh, created is now in the hands of another set of parents. And I, uh, in the case of Masters of Sex, and certainly as I've been, I've been introducing myself to the new showrunner of Mafia Spies and the showrunner for another book of mine about the Churchills and the Kennedys, I very clearly say to them at the very outset of the relationship, this is your baby. I understand that. Right. And I would be appreciative uh, if you can listen to my ideas. Um, I think somebody, a showrunner that doesn't listen to my ideas is foolish. But uh, generally speaking, uh, in the case of Masters of Sex, what I would do is every season, I would write a memo of suggestions, kind of like the suggestion box right. type of thing. And um, so that's basically the way I proceeded. I've listened to a lot of authors who have really uh, made people upset who say, oh, that book is not exactly right. the way my book is. In the end. N no, I think when they do a dramatization, particularly of a nonfiction book, a drama is by definition fiction. And so they are making their interpretation of a book. But, to a, uh, it, but, uh, but a book and a television show are two very different uh, creations. Uh, God bless the DVR because I'm a big fan of Showtime, Stars, and HBO. And right now it's the final season of HBO called The Affair. And the character's name is Noah Soloway, and he's written a book. It's now in this last season, it's becoming a, a movie. And there's a conflict between the writer, Noah Soloway, and the actor. And the actor is trying to change the book. And you can see the tensions come into play. Now, this is TV, this is drama, but it's really interesting. I think you touch upon that, that you create something in your books, and somebody else is sitting down and interpreting them. And also, when you take a book, and Mafia Spies is very well researched, I'll ask you about that. When you turn into a TV program, a movie, there's something called compression of time. So they can't take everything in the book, they have to compress it down to make the narrative flow. So how do you react to that? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. Masters of Sex was about Masters and Johnson. They were sex researchers. And their, their relationship, working their professional and their personal relationship, started in the mid-50s and extended to about 2001. So that was a big question about time jumps and things right. like that. And I think they tried to deal with that as artfully as they could. In Mafia Spies, that also is a, a time period of about 25 years from from beginning to end. I personally don't like when things move too fast like that. I actually think if you look at a successful show like Downton Abbey, uh, that's a relatively short period of time that they're dealing with. Um, and I, you know, I think to um, plumb deeply into characters and the motivations. I think that's the most important thing. I think that's what makes a drama come alive. And I don't think rushing through a story is necessarily a good idea. Here's the beauty of books for me. I believe books can take us where we physically can't go. I mean, we would like to go to a lot of places in the books that you write. We can't do that. So you take us on that journey. Are you aware of that, that that's the power of books, in a sense, it also can be a time machine. Sure, it's, they call it the theater of the mind. And I think that's what a, a, a good book hopefully does, is uh, hopefully my books are good books, uh, that they do bring you into worlds that you would never have been able to go to physically or had access to, particularly in the context of power. Um, that you just aren't not, not able to get into. And I think, that's, I think that's something where the theater of the mind right. makes it much more vivid for people, even more so than, say, a TV show, regardless of what the budget is. The uh, book that I um, wrote about five years ago, it's called When Lions Roar. It's about the Churchills and the Kennedys. And that's been signed by Warner Brothers, and they are... Uh, they have a showrunner for that. And um, it is interesting because the first season that we're thinking about is that it would be not that expensive. But when we get into war, uh, World War II, that war is expensive, uh, regardless of how they do it. And um, so it, it, these are all factors that, that come into play. But in a book, you don't have to worry about, about a budget like that. Thomas Mayer's latest book, or one of his latest books, is Mafia Spies, the inside story of the CIA, gangsters JFK and Castro, and also all that glitters. It's about essentially about Cy Newhouse, Newhouse family, Condé Nast, Nast Media, and Annie Wintour and Tina Brown. You said access. Mm -hmm. What access did you have to new information from the archives that informed the Mafia Spies? Well, it's very interesting because uh, as I began to think about this, I became aware of the JFK assassination papers that were uh, kept confidential for almost 50 years, I guess, and that uh, they were supposed to be released. And there was a question about whether or not President Trump would allow them to be released, and he did, thank heavens, uh, allow virtually all of them. There are still some, some of those papers that are being kept confidential. Um, there were no big smoking guns, although one or two things I could argue about. But for me, in doing Mafia Spies, one of the really interesting things is, of course, as I mentioned, Mafia Spies is about two gangsters hired by the CIA to kill Fidel Castro 
Well, guess what? Castro died in his bed about 50 years later as an old man. So how was it that the CIA and the mafia together were unable to kill Castro? And there were a number of attempts uh, to kill Castro. Part of it has to do with uh, the spying uh, apparatus that Castro developed with the help of the Soviets. The Soviets taught Castro everything that he knew about spying, and they set up a, a spying network, not only in Cuba right. for those uh, agents that filtered into Cuba, but there were also, as it turns out, a number of Castro spies in southern Florida, which is where the CIA had a, a whole operation. It was basically a war that was being run out of southern Florida. Uh, and they would go out at night. Uh, the, one of the major, the, there's two key figures in my book. And one of them is a guy named Johnny Roselli, a gangster. And he would go out on boats with Cuban exiles and they would go out to Cuba in a number of cases in which uh, one in particular where they were just waiting for him. Uh, they were just there. In other words, uh, Castro's forces had already been tipped off about that. So what I'm getting at is that the, the newly discovered papers, the newly released papers right. uh, that Trump allowed, they provided a lot of the little details about, for instance, Johnny Roselli, his code number for the CIA. That was in those papers. Uh, the stuff about little aspects of all the various different uh, spies that were connected to the mafia guys and to the CIA and to Castro. I got a lot of those details from these recently released papers. And, and so it really makes that, that whole war that was being run out of South Florida, it makes it come alive for me. You know, also the character, main character was Sam Giancana, the boss of bosses, the outfit was. in Chicago. But I, I spoke to you on the phone earlier this week, and I said, it's another character that's not in the title. I think he plays a really important role in many aspects, and that's Frank Sinatra. What role was he in this story, Mafia Spies? <laughs> well, uh, you know, um, I, uh, there are two main characters, as you mentioned, Sam Giancana, and as I mentioned earlier, Johnny Roselli. And it's, to me, it was, it's kind of like a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid type of thing. They're both int very intriguing bad guys. Uh, the bad guys, to some extent, are sympathetic, and the good guys are the ones in this book that you, you scratch your head about. Sinatra uh, had what the FBI called an, a hoodlum complex. That was something that was I found in his FBI file. And I thought that was a really interesting, kind of almost Freudian uh, analysis mm -hmm. of Sinatra. You know, it's interesting when you look at Sinatra's career in the 40s, he was kind of this uh, very thin, very tender, kind of a high-registered uh, baritone singer, uh, very popular, obviously. But in the in the 50s, he be, he actually became a slightly deeper uh, register, but he also became, he almost affected this gangster rat pack type of uh, persona, which is very different from this Bobby Soxer uh, love affair that he had. You know, if you look at Snatcher, there's always the big bow tie and such from the mid 50s, in the mid 40s. But by 1960, He's the head of the Rat Pack, and uh, it's almost like the predecessor for gangster rap these days. In fact, a lot of gang rap 
rappers do like that whole uh, Rat Pack persona and such. And a lot of that seemed to be the influence of Giancana. And uh, ironically, the FBI was putting their finger on it back in the day when they were observing Sinatra and they realized he had this hoodlum complex. You know, you have a background in being raised as a Catholic, is that correct? That is correct. And I believe it carries over into your life today and what you write. And this is a little kernel I pulled out of the book because I remember Rich Cohen did a book called Tough Jews about Murder Incorporated. Murder Incorporated were the hitmen for the mafia at a certain time in, in American history. And he said even though these guys travel all over the country and do all these hits and murders, they would also also have the Sabbath and also go to the temple or the synagogue. You touch upon some of the characters in the book, and it's an aspect, and I'm interested on the philosophical point of this. What is the difference between a venal or a mortal sin, and how did some of these gangsters rationalize that? Well, that's a really interesting. First of all, I'm not a Catholic writer per se. I am a writer who recognizes that in a I try to I try to write about people the way that they define themselves, not as I, as a Columbia graduate, uh, Columbia, Columbia graduate school of journalism graduate, or you know, where somebody who is a, in a, a secularist would write about it, and, and they denude people of the often the way in which they define themselves. Uh, uh, for instance, Martin Luther King, you have to understand his understanding of, of, of religion to understand so much of who and what he was. Um, in, in this case, uh, well, certainly with the Kennedys, that was my major draw in uh, just wondering how their Irish Catholic immigrant experience defined their public and pu private lives. And that was huge how much information had been missed from histories that paint the Kennedys uh, not as uh, an immigrant story, but as a Camelot. It's crazy stuff because Camelot, that's, that, that's British. It's, it's, it's waspy. It was uh, not their story at all. It was fundamentally flawed. So for me, I'd like to look at aspects of religion, how it plays off. Now, how does it do that with two gangsters? And it's interesting, Roselli, it's funny because, you know, Roselli is not his real name. He, he allegedly killed somebody in Boston. He adopted an alias. Uh, and the FBI later found out his real name and realized he was, and, uh, he was a uh, illegal immigrant to this country. But Roselli used the name of, uh, of a painter named uh, Gianni Roselli, uh, who, um, who painted this part of the, uh, the Sistine Chapel. Uh, and Roselli actually did a number of different things where uh, he was helping uh, Catholic charities and such. And it was interesting to me at the end of his life when he knew he was going to be killed, he had a really strong sense of how he was uh, coming to grips with the end of his life, how he tried to make amends with that. Gene Kana was kind of like, in a way, like Joe Kennedy. Hmm. He felt that if he gave enough money to the Padre, if he paid for a new altar or whatever, that somehow that would, that would be enough. You could pay enough money to, to, to get into the gates of heaven. And, of course, uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Uh, but nevertheless, the way in which uh, religion is defined by these two characters uh, is something that I think was part, you know, part of the mix, not, not the essential part of it. Um, how do they 
you, I think from your question, you're also saying, I, I presume that you're asking uh, about violence. And to me, a violence is something that is uh, kind of the, the tableau of mafia spies. In fact, many, in many ways, mafia spies is, you know, what I tried to do with Masters of Sex and, and about love and sex and, you know, the, the, uh, the relationship uh, that men and women have in, in the world of intimacy. Uh, there's something even more all-American than sex. It's violence in our society, quite unfortunately. And uh, Mafia Spies deals with uh, institutional state-sanctioned assassination. It deals with undeclared wars. It, de it, it deals with kind of almost like a corporate way of killing your enemies in the, in the organized crime world. And it's also the, the world of psychotic killers. That Giancana had a guy who was uh, just a complete psychopath and would take people down into his, uh, down into his basement where he had uh, basically a torture chamber. And, and that's how he enforced uh, some of his rule in Chicago. You mentioned institutions. I'm going to throw an oddball question out to you. Handle it any way that you want, including telling me go on to the next question. In institutions, there's something called the glass ceiling. There's a glass ceiling in the church. There's no female priests. There's a glass ceiling in organized crime, as much as I know right now, in terms of there are no made female members. Mm -hmm. And in terms of publishing, especially your book, All That Glitters, there was also, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, for many, many years, led by Cy Newhouse, a glass ceiling in Condé Nast. Oh, yeah. It's really interesting with Condé Nast magazines. So many of the magazines, Vogue, Glamour, all these different, Mademoiselle, all these different magazines, over a number of decades, would tell women how to look, how to dress, how to smell, how to feel, you know, just in general. Uh, and the two people that were really running those magazines uh, was Cy Newhouse, the owner, and a guy named Alex Lieberman, who was the uh, editorial director. And he, he was a uh, very continental type of guy. You could almost picture like a David Nivens from back in the day. Or I'm trying to think of who might be uh, an appropriate, maybe Anthony Hopkins or somebody like that today. Has a presence. Yeah, has a real presence. And he was almost like the charm school teacher for Cy Newhouse. He, he introduced him to the whole world of art and such. But he was also the designer. He was the one who gave a lot of the magazines their look. And um, what's interesting to me, I think one of the big, probably the biggest change in American media in the last 50 years is the introduction of women into the newsroom. Uh, not like the, the uh, girl reporter of, say, like the old front page days of, 1930s or whatever, prior to World War II. I'm talking particularly about the baby boom generation of women who came of age starting in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, I'm a baby boomer. Um, Larry, I presume you're a yes, baby I boomer. Yes, I am. And that's, yeah. Yeah, that's really great. I'll interrupt for a second. No matter how old I get, you get, to be called a baby boomer <laughs> still, still makes me feel kind of young. Millennials, this X generation. Yeah. Baby boomers, yeah. I, can, I can live with that distinction. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. I, <laughs> I think it's uh, just part of that generation's self-delusion. 
Uh, but be that as it may, I do think that the, the to me, the, all that glitters, one of the big things is misogyny and about how this first big wave of women who came into the media world, uh, you know, the type of misogyny that they broke through. And I think they have overcome more or less uh, by now. But, um, I, and I'm sure there are a lot of women who would disagree with me about that. But um, uh, in the case of All That Glitters, I think Tina Brown and uh, Anna Wintour, Anna Wintour, uh, are two really fascinating, terrifically talented women. And there's kind of a competition, Cy Newhouse used to call it, a managed competition, mm -hmm. a rivalry for shorthand. But basically between these two women and who would run the company. And when I f first wrote about the Newhouse uh, world, I wrote a book called Newhouse. Uh, and this book, All That Glitters, is a complete... Uh, revision of of this book uh, 25 years later. So I'm now able to tell you in a way that I didn't know the story 25 years ago, what happened in this rivalry or competition between Wintour and Tina Brown. And when I, and that happened to be my first book. So when I did this book, um, it really looked like Tina Brown would be running the company. And it's interesting to see 25 years later how uh, Anna Wintour wound up uh, prevailing. She runs the company now. And this book, All That Glitters, deals with that. You know, when I was a college student at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, I used to go up into the library under the pretense I, wasn't, I was going to study. What happened was I pulled out all the old Look magazines and Life magazines. My uncle worked for Look magazine and ran the photo lab department. In fact, he's, he's the one person to save the picture of the young Kennedy under President Kennedy's, his son, John John, mm -hmm. under his desk, which is a famous, iconic picture. My uncle in the photo lab department helped save that picture, by the way. Mm -hmm. So I love, I love magazines. I used to uh, Sports Illustrated, Sport Magazine, all those magazines I would go cover to cover. In the terms of Vogue and Vanity mm -hmm. Fair, where, the, where it's said that a picture is worth a thousand words, how important are the covers? Oh, huge. In fact, uh, with Condé Nast, there were two things that I would even add to what you said about life and look. One is um, that Lieberman, Alex Lieberman, who I mentioned before, he would bring in a lot of artists to work on it, people like Irving Penn, great photographers. Irving Penn, a lot of his finances uh, came from the Condé Nast world. Uh, that it also enabled him to do some of his other art artwork. Uh, uh, Richard Avedon uh, was also a huge uh, influence on the world of photography in the last 50, 75 years. And his main gig was also with the Condé Nast. The other thing about the Condé Nast magazines, that they had a lot of, I always love this, scent strips. That in other words, unlike Life or Look magazine, when you opened up Vogue or Vanity Fair, you get all these strips for different perfumes or colognes and whatever. Right. And, uh, you know, if, if you have like a six or 400 page uh, September issue of, of Vogue or whatever it is, you know, how many pages it is, uh, Vanity Fair, some of those thick... Uh, th it, there'd be enough smells to knock out the mailman. Uh, that would, and it, but they also made them very memorable, very s the, the sensuous. 
Uh, this podcast is actually coming from the Sachem Public Library, considered one of the top libraries in all of Long Island. So here's a question, since we're coming from the library and outside where we're doing this taping, is thousands and thousands and thousands of books and periodicals. Do you remember the first book you ever took out of the library? I do. Not, oh, well, I think it was out of the library. Um, <laughs> It's pretty inane, actually. It's called Tip, Tip and Mitten. And those were the first books, I think, from the first grade and such. I do know that my parents, though, uh, used to, uh, we used to live in Richmond Hill. And there was an older woman who lived in the apartment across the, the hallway from us. And she used to uh, read books to myself and my brother. And, um, you know, it's those type of things that you, you do remember. Now I'm going to embarrass you because I've done this many, many times. I don't do it anymore because when you do these kind of interviews, you get books sent to you. God bless me because I have a lot of these books I'm saving for my daughter, signed copies, that I was famous in my family for never returning books on time. And it's something interesting happening in America right now. There's a movement for no more late fees in libraries. Too late for me, but good for a lot of other people. Did you ever, ever return a book late or never return it at all? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, guilty on both uh, charges. Uh, sure, of course. Uh, yeah, I, I was definitely a uh, voracious reader. Um, I would I'd be one of those type of nerdy kids that would come out of the library with 10 or 12 books in my arms and such. And, and, you know, you read at different books for different reasons and such. And sometimes you do, you also read at different, uh, different speeds and such. Um, you know, I, I, I like to think that people luxuriate in my books, uh, that in other words, it's one of those type of books that you could sit and you can kind of almost enjoy every sentence, if you will, just the way it's crafted or you, that you're trying to build you, with the story. You're trying to build one chapter upon the, the other and, and such. Uh, but, you know, uh, sure, I, as a kid, I, I read a lot of things and certainly as a journalist, I do as well. An artist of Kenyan descent said, when a grandfather dies, you lose a whole library. What do you think she meant? Well, you know, it's interesting today. Um, I guess maybe because I uh, have a few gray hairs myself, that you do think about how we view the people who are older. Um, maybe because we live in a disposable society and such a society that values where money is the god. Uh, that um, I think at times we uh, look at older people. Uh, as disposable. In fact, I, I, I'm kind of struck by some of the intolerance towards uh, Joe Biden uh, right now, who's running, and, and virtually every gaffe or every slip of the tongue uh, that he has seems to be a, a news story, uh, particularly by his critics. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't know in an earlier generation uh, would people have jumped all over older, an older candidate like that. I, I think there is uh, an intolerance by the young, more so these days than even when I was younger, I think. I think it did. I think the baby boomers were the ones who <laughs> kind of brought a, uh, I do 
blame baby boomers for a number of different things. And I think the, uh, the, uh, this creature comforts, the, the, the idolization of money and, and the disposableness of people, um, I think, uh, to some extent has been hastened by the baby boom generation. But as they get older, who knows, knowing the baby boom, that will probably make it into a, uh, a, a, new, a newfound attribute. Uh, Thomas Mayer, author of Mafia Spies and All That Glitters, as well as my favorite books from the past, The Kennedys, America's Emerald Kings. Thank you so much for sharing some of your insights about the creative process. I'm Larry Davidson. After the break, singer, songwriter, and TV host, Wes Houston stops by. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast. Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. And he's a great storyteller. You just heard him play a little bit. Welcome to the program, Wes Houston. Hey, Larry. Thanks for having me over. Singer, songwriter, TV host. So everybody has an origin story. Where it all started. I don't know where it started for me, but I'm sitting here right now, so I guess this program has started. Where did it start for Wes Houston in terms of music? Well, I guess uh, you first get started by being turned on to the music to begin with, you know. And uh, I had a, a brother who was four years older than myself. So when he was 13, 14, I was 9, 10, um, he dragged me all to the uh, Alan Freed rock and roll <laughs> concerts in Manhattan at uh, the, either the Brooklyn Paramount, right. New York Paramount. They bounce him back and forth, Easter. You know, uh, Christmas shows, summer shows, and uh, that just, you know what, like someone gave me the rock and roll injection, you know? You know, a lot of people have treadmills in their home and they become planters. A lot of people have guitars in their home and it's pretty much just a gathered dust. What brought you to the guitar? How, how did you start with it? And how do you keep it up? Because I'm told unless you keep playing, 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 you can lose a little bit. Well, I can definitely testify to that. You know, I'm one of these guys that, you know, uh, you don't practice one day and you know it. You don't practice two days and everybody knows it. You know, so I have to just, uh, I have to keep at it. That's for sure. Um, my interest in the guitar in particular, of course, goes right back to those shows. But also the fact that my uh, dad played um, guitar in big bands. And he had a beautiful old Gibson L7, which I own today. And um, he eventually ended up, you know, after the war, you know, got a job. But he played his whole life, too. And uh, that always uh, kept my interest peaked. Got to play with him a lot, as well as my grandfather was also a professional musician. And um, they lived down in uh, Cypress Hills. And he played a lot, my uncle also. So it was kind of... A family tradition. Yes, I may have forgotten this because we haven't spoken in a while. Is it true? Was your father, grandfather also had a collection of rifles or guns? Is that true? That's true. My father was a, a small arms instructor in the army and he um, 
had a lifelong love affair of guns and rifles and had quite a nice collection. And uh, it's an odd story here, too, because when he passed away, um, nobody really was hip on, like, the licenses for these things. So what happened, as the paperwork goes, and you have a license that, that goes out, eventually it hits the local police precinct. So when it hit the 105th police precinct, my mom, who was like 80 at the time, uh, got surrounded by the police cars and they knocked on her door and they asked about, you know, my father's rifles. Uh, most of his collection were flintlocks and things you didn't need licenses, but he had a couple of shotguns and a 22. And um, none of us realized this. My son happened to be going home from work that same day, saw all the police cars at my mom's house and thought something happened to my mom, went over there, and uh, they were just looking for the rifles. Well, who are your musical influences? Now, I say that because I go through various stages of my life. I listen to different kind of music, different kind of musicians, and it's almost like, for me, a trigger. I can hear a song and go back 50 years or even more, just on that, so, hey, Paul and Paula. I remember going to parties and hearing, hey, Paul and Paula, and I'm going way back. But songs have memories, and they, in a visceral way, bring things up in us that we kind of forgotten, but all of a sudden it's resurrected. Who are your musical influences? Well, I would have to go back to, um, well, first of all, my first, your last guest, you asked him his first book that he bought. Uh, my first record would be an album of 78's uh, Songs of the South from the movie that Johnny Mercer had written them. But I would have to go back to the Alan Freed shows because I'll tell you, when you went there, if, if it wasn't a band that had their own group, say you had Buddy Holly, he had the crickets with him, they would perform. The big band behind everybody that would come out was basically Count Basie's band without Count Basie with Sam the Man Taylor and Al Sears and King Curtis on tenor saxes. And uh, so the nice thing about that was I got to see the music seemed to me to be very regional back then. You had a group from Texas that sounded nothing like, you know, the Cleftones from Jamaica, Queens or the Dell Vikings. Or then you had Fats Domino from New Orleans and all these people together. One of my favorites was Johnny Ray, who somehow or another fit into that whole rock and roll thing. <laughs> he would come out and it would be just Johnny Ray back by the orchestra, but it would just be like, he'd walk out and it'd just be one lone blue spotlight on him and he would sing Cry or, you know, I still have a love for that um, ballads, Arthur Price act, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Scott, people like that. You know, I have a collection of books. I used to have a collection of old magazines. Of course, when I went to college, uh, moms, you know what moms do when they go into your room? Yeah. Moms go through your baseball card collection and your old magazines, and they are long gone. You have a reputation for having an extensive collection of albums. Tell us about that. Well, first of all, I wouldn't let my mom throw them out, unless <laughs> she threatened many times. Um, yeah, I started buying out. My brother and I, once again, my brother uh, dragged me into it. And, you know, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fats Domino, all the gang. And I just never got rid of them. And I have to say, some of the records that I have from back then in the 50s, 
some of them are basically unplayable, but I never start buying records. I have maybe 5,000 records now, augmented by almost half of that in CDs too. Um, I know, how can you play them all? How can you get to them? You know, it's tough a little bit, but uh, you know, like you say, you go through these uh, periods of time where like you want to like, listen to singer-songwriters for a while, or then you get into like a jazz thing, you listen to Charlie Parker. I love bouncing from like Charlie Parker with strings to somebody like um, even Bob Dylan or, you know, his early things, which I like very much. Now, how does Bob Dylan still say relevant? And we, t we talked about that because I'm a huge fan of Bob Dylan. You may criticize what he does and people say his voice can irritate you, but he seems to reinvent himself all the time and still stay relevant. Well, still say relevant for sure. And um, I never understood that about his voice because I always thought he had a really good voice. He always sang on pitch. He was adventurous with his voice. He'd move his lyrics around. Um, you know, he kept everything interesting. It wasn't like he was stuck in time. Even today, well, he's doing, as you know, the classic yes. songbook. Yeah. I enjoy that. I think it's really good. But something that you mentioned before about hearing a song and going back into time to a certain spot, I think that's absolutely the truth. But that also brings about, say, in this area's music scene, where it is predominantly, I mean, there's all wonderful things going on, don't get me wrong, but it's predominantly cover bands which turned into tribute bands. And I can remember back in the 70s, you would have like my band, we would draw maybe 300 people, which is nice, but the cover bands would draw a thousand people because people came and they, you know, lived uh, through the songs right. and they do that right. today too. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of the songs people go and they hear a Beatles song or a Herman Hermit or whatever, and it brings them back to their uh, good times, so to speak. It's interesting you say that because when I got married, I wanted the Louie Louie song. I didn't go over, so we had the song was Forever Young, which every time I hear it, I'm no longer married, but every time I hear it, it still brings back really very strong memories. It's the truth. It's the truth. People tell us when they come and see us, the, the ones that are still there from the heyday, and, uh, you know, they start talking about the places we used to play and the towns, the way right. the towns right. used to be in the parks, you know. Um, my guest is Wes Houston, singer-songwriter and also TV host. So if you don't mind, because we didn't prepare anything, can you sing and play a little bit of a song for us? Sure. I have a, um, tell you what, let me play a short one here. The song is called If I Cry. When the word that you were gone finally reached us And she realized she wouldn't see you again From all worlds she withdrew, did what she had to do I remember the last words that she said if the sun never shines and the rose never blooms if young lovers never get together 
Though it's tearing at my heart, I can't let the teardrops stop. If I cry, I'll be crying forever. If I cry, I'll be crying forever. I kiss goodbye like every other morning. He waved, said, I'll see you in a while. If only she had known the day that he left home would be the last she saw his loving smile. Now she lie awake, walk the floor till daylight, then go out into a world she doesn't know. The spark's gone from her eye, learning to survive. The years spent wondering why you had to go. If the sun never shines and the rose never blooms, if young lovers never get together, though it's tearing at my heart, I can't let the teardrops start. If I cry, I'll be crying forever. If I cry, I'll be crying forever. Thanks, Wes. You know, I, before I forget, um, you perform all over the metropolitan area. People want to find out where you're performing or also have access to your television programs. Where can they go? Well, that would be westhouston.com, and uh, we keep all the gigs up there, a lot of photos, things like that. Not too much. It's kind of old-school website, you know, but uh, the important information is there, and if you're interested in coming out and seeing, I for years I rode with a six-, seven-, eight-piece band. These days I'm uh, down to a trio with myself and Ray Ford June on the drums and Steve Hawk on the bass, and uh, we're still playing as much as they let us. Now, I have had produced in the past a television program called Davidson and Company. I was the producer and the host for many, many years out of the Four Village Television Studio in Florida Park. Your TV program is also produced in that same facility. Tell us about uh, your TV program. Well, we started uh, 19, we were on our 19th year, and basically I, in the older, shows I went out a lot and checked out a lot of groups and as the show kind of caught on people started contacting me I still like to go and see them but since we started YouTube is here and Facebook and uh, you know not many people use the phone anymore and uh, so I go out and I see a lot of acts and uh, I try to keep it up there what you might call the A-level stuff um, I like you know, I like all kinds of music we've had on Cajun music, blues, singer-songwriters, uh, rock and roll, a couple of uh, even cover band actions going on. And uh, we mix it up. And uh, I, a lot of word of mouth. I know a lot of people who are out there on the scene all the time. And they'll give me a call and say, hey, Wes, or they'll email me, check out this person. And uh, just when sometimes you think like, oh, boy, the well's running dry, <laughs> bingo, it's a flood. You know, I am doing a series, series at this library called Conversations with Writers 
It's, it's actually going to occur in the month of September and October and beyond. And I like that, not necessarily for myself, but also for the, my guests, the writers, of being in front of an audience. I believe the feedback is really important, especially for the writer, because it's a solitary thing to sit down and, and write a book. And the feedback is sometimes just with friends and the publishers and editors, but they get real feedback when they see the reaction from the audience. When you're performing in front of an audience, what is that like? Well, um, it might be why, uh, it might be just the reason of doing all of this. It's as simple as that. I mean, I mean, I love playing and I love playing with other musicians, but if you're not out there trying to uh, push what you do and let people know what you do, um, I have to say I'm like really happy with this because when we play a lot of the times, it's like really nice because people Look, I don't mean that a lot of bands are like too loud. I like loud, but sometimes when they want to hear something different, they can come and see us. It's just the three of us. A, a lot of ballads, you know, that's probably, uh, you know, sometimes doesn't work so for you, ballads, but I just love them, you know. And uh, if the people walk away, and I always get a lot of nice compliments, and that, you know, keeps you going. It really does. I'm Larry Davidson. You're listening to Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. Can you kind of play us out, Wes? Because I'm getting tired of hearing my own voice and much rather listen to yours. Sounds good, buddy. Um, I'll play you one here. I worked at a theater for quite a while. And one day we were ready to do a show. And um, the woman who was watching the dancers and keeping an eye on things came running out. And the person... MCing said, what's the matter? And she said, everybody's here except Mary. And I thought, wow, everybody's here. With a traveling troop somewhere out west, working so hard while she's doing her best. They rip up the road as they travel all night. Pulling up to the theater at the first sign of light. Backstage is funky while the dressing room's drab. But the light don't seem bright, the stage manager's mad. She brushes it off while she's been through it all. From the opening line to the curtain call. Everybody's here except Mary. Where did Mary go? Everybody's here except Mary No one will ever know Young folks, they're jumping while they're raring to go She smiles but never tells them what they don't need to know She's been at it so long, why she know what to do Deep in her mind there's a dark thought or two So many shows so many years no time for laughing and no time for tears no time for family no time for home she's everyone's baby but feels so alone now everybody's here except mary where did mary go everybody's here except mary no one will ever know the audience is in, two minutes to go. 
The curtain man is ready to start the show. The lights go down, the dance is running this way. From off to the side, I hear her say, Everybody's here except Mary. Where did Mary go? Everybody's here except Mary. No one will ever know. Years have gone by since the night of that show. They're traveling still, guess that's the way that it goes. And I know a house now, it's not far away, where a girl named Mary sings every day. She sings, everybody's here except Mary. Where did Mary go? Everybody's here except Mary. No one will ever know You've been listening to the Artful Periscope Podcast. The Artful Periscope Podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tired to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair.